the reduction of inequality and, you know, in particular, the increase in the share of total wealth going to the middle class came in the 20th century through a number of public policies. Broadly speaking, you know, the rise of social security, free education, progressive taxation. And so the key question is based on these historical lessons. How can we keep making progress in the future? And in particular, how can we improve the share of total wealth owned by the bottom 50%, which is still very, very, very small today. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. Today, I want to share some of the core findings of chapter three of The Great Experiment with you. It starts with a kind of puzzle. In India, we have often had deep forms of what Indians call intercommunal violence, of terrible riots that have cost the lives of many Muslims and Hindus over the course of the past decades. But the great political scientist Ashutosh Varshni poses a kind of puzzle. Why is it that the city of Aligarh experienced a lot of these riots, a lot of these tragic clashes between Hindus and Muslims, but the city of Kozikode is actually very similar. That's a similar size and affluence and similar demographic composition with about two-thirds of Hindus and about one-third of Muslims has not experienced those kinds of violent clashes. What can explain this? Well, I think this question can be answered by looking at two really helpful findings in the psychology and the political science literature. The first is about intergroup contact. It's the fact that when people spend more time with groups against which they used to have some amount of prejudice, they can, under the right circumstances, come to have much more mutual tolerance. In Boston in the early 1950s, for example, whites that lived door-to-door with African-Americans ended up having more positive views of them than whites who lived in integrated housing units. But there are important conditions on that intergroup contact. It works very well when people have a common goal, when they are equal within that particular situation, even if a man not tragically be equal in society at large, and when the authorities are encouraging them to get along. In short, it works very well on sports teams in high schools in which people from different ethnic and religious groups are competing together to win the championship. It does not work very well in the kinds of affinity groups that have now become so popular in many private American schools in which a teacher comes in at the age of 10 or 8 or 6 and tells students to split themselves into an African-American group, an Asian-American group, a Latino group, and a white group. That is much more likely to activate the kind of groupishness which I've talked about in the past, the instinct to favor the in-group over the out-group, including among the white students. And there's a second piece of the puzzle too. Robert Putnam has explained the importance of social capital, the positive effects of a rich variety of associations that allow people to connect with each other. And it turns out that Aligarh and Kozikode both have a lot of these associations, but there is also a crucial difference between them. Because in Aligarh, the more riot-prone city, most of those associations 
are of the bonding kind. The separate trade unions and book clubs for Hindus on the one side and Muslims on the other. So when there is high political tension, and when there's rumors flying around that some group of Muslim youths has killed a Hindu, there is no connective tissue that can dispel those rumors and keep the peace. In Kozikot, most of these rich civic associations are integrated. Hindus and Muslims are members together of the Rickshaw Pullers Association, of other trade unions, of literary and book clubs. And so in moments of high political tension, they trust each other. And when somebody says, this rumor is not true, I know these boys, we did not do this, they might step down from the longing for revenge. They might manage to keep the calm and keep the peace. So one of the core things that can keep diverse societies from falling apart in the most violent and dangerous ways is the right kind of intergroup contact, the one that encourages people to get along and play literally or metaphorically on the same team, and the bridging social capital, the connection between different groups, the connective tissue, which ensures that alongside our group identity, we also share a common identity. This for me sets up the next part of the book, the part of the book in which I go from an empirical description of the challenges of building diverse democracies to a normative description of the kind of society that we should aim for and the kinds of features that it needs to have for diverse democracies to succeed. Please order The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Please read along with me as I am talking you through the book and please send me any questions you might have about it. But now, on to the main act, Monsieur Thomas Piketty. My guest today needs a little introduction. It is Thomas Piketty, the author of The Phenomenon, the best-selling capital in the 21st century. His most recent book is A Brief History of Equality. The trajectory of Piketty's thought has been really interesting in Capital in the 21st Century, in which Piketty argued that our the return on capital has historically been greater than G, the rate of economic growth, leading to potentially rapidly growing inequality in the 21st century. But in some of his latest work, he has also been emphasizing the extent to which this depends on political decisions, and in fact, the extent to which the world in 2022 is much more equal than it was a century or two centuries ago. So we tried to explore the reasons to be optimistic as well as pessimistic. I pressed Piketty on some of the most common criticisms of his work. We discussed the prospects for political interventions that will lead to greater equality down the line and what that kind of society might look like. And finally, we talked about the changing socioeconomic basis of the left and whether that will undermine the left's ability to be the kind of force for equality that Piketty is hoping for. The conversation really helped me understand the arc and the subtleties of Piketty's work, and I hope that it will help you think through the nature and the challenges of capitalism in the 21st century as well. 
Thomas Piketty. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for your invitation. So I'm really interested in the evolution of your thinking over the course of the last decade from capital in the 21st century to the new book on the history of inequality or perhaps the history of equality. Let's start at the beginning. What is the core of the argument of capital in the 21st century? And what is the meaning of that famous slogan, R is bigger than G? Oh, you're bringing me back 10 years before. But let me say, generally speaking, I've been working in the history of the distribution of income and wealth for 20 years now. And I'm trying to make progress in this direction. You know, my new book, my brief history of equality, you know, I think is uh, not only uh, briefer than the first uh, two books, but I think it's probably also clearer about the big message, which is this long run movement toward uh, equality, you know, starting at the end of the 18th century with the French Revolution, the US Revolution, and this movement continuing throughout the 19th century, 20th century, and until today. So in this very broad perspective, R bigger than G, you know, is still important. You know, it's always been important. And one way to realize what it means and the role it plays is if you look at the evolution of wealth holders, you know, in recent decades or even during the pandemic, you know, if you look at global billionaires, you know, 10 years ago, the richest billionaire on the planet used to own uh, 30 or 40 or 50 billion dollars. And today, you know, they have 200 or more. So if you look at the evolution, you know, the rate at which top wealth holders increase their wealth, you know, it's of the order of seven, eight percent per year, you know, very, very high rate of return to this very high wealth level, which is obviously a lot bigger than the growth rate of world GDP. So, you know, the growth rate of world GDP could be, you know, two or three percent per year. That's partly due to population growth. So actually, if you look at average income or average wealth, it will be, you know, one or two percent per year. So are bigger than G, you know, first means it's that you have a rate of return on wealth and especially on very high wealth portfolio, which tend to be bigger than the growth rate. Now, that doesn't mean that the rate of return for small saving is bigger than the growth rate. I mean, as you know, the interest rate right now is 0%, or actually it's negative uh, if you look at the real interest rate and take away inflation. So people who have little saving, you know, for them, R is certainly not bigger than G. But for very high wealth portfolio, so to take another example than top billionaire, you know, in, in my book, Capital in the 21st Century, I collected data on large university endowments which is interesting because, you know, say in the US, you know, you have 800 universities with uh, capital endowments and you have pretty good data about what they do with their endowments and the rate of returns they get, which is not the case, you know, for billionaires, you know, the kind of information we have in Forbes magazine, etc. you know, it's not so high quality. And so at least, you know, this university capital endowments, we have really good data. And so what you see and what I have shown in Capital in the 21st Century is that if you take... A long period of time, you know, say 1980 to 2010, which is what I was looking at when I published Capital in the 21st Century back in 2013. You know, it's very spectacular. You know, the very highest capital endowments, you know, they will get a net return, you know, net of inflation, net of all administrative expenses, uh, operating expenses of 
seven, eight, nine percent per year. If you look at the middle on demand, they will get five, six. If you look at the very small on demand, they will get two, three. It's very spectacular because, I mean, you could say, okay, if these universities are doing useful things with the money, that's okay. Well, maybe, you know, this creates huge inequality among the U.S. universities and, you know, bottom half of U.S. universities, bottom two-thirds of U.S. universities, you know, don't have as much resources as I think they should have. And sometimes very top places, you know, have more money than what they are able to spend uh, in a useful manner. But in any case, if you apply this kind of mechanism to private individuals and to, you know, the distribution of wealth in general, you can see how this mechanism can contribute to unsustainable level of wealth concentration. And it's more than just a question of money. You know, the ownership is first and foremost about power. So the distribution of wealth is about the distribution of power, you know, to make decisions about your life, to invest, to create a firm, to protect your family. And so not asking for complete equality, but, you know, if you have such a huge concentration of wealth at the top and the middle class is diminishing in their wealth share and the bottom 50%, you know, they basically never own anything and don't have much security or much economic opportunity to invest, create, you know, I think it's not only unfair, but, you know, pretty inefficient for society in general. Now, the good news is that there are many ways around this, you know, through policies and through various institutions, including, of course, fiscal policies, transformation of the legal system, giving more power to workers, reinventing the notion of property and property relations so that different people can participate to decision-making. And again, you know, this is this long-run movement of a transformation in the fiscal and legal system that we see in the long run. So it's not only a dream, this is what we've seen over, you know, the past two centuries. And, you know, this is this optimistic perspective and the history of equality, which I really want to communicate because, you know, I realized after writing, you know, Capital in the 21st Century that are bigger than G story, you know, is still very important today as much as 10 years ago. But, there's a risk that people only remember this and have a sort of very deterministic and sort of pessimistic view of the future, which, you know, has never been my way of looking at the world. But, you know, maybe I was not sufficiently clear about this and I'm now making progress by discussing with you, for instance, today. And maybe I am now clearer on this. So I feel a lot of empathy for your position because I became, you know, known, less known than you through my work on the threat that authoritarian populism poses to democracy. And I feel that people have overshot the pessimism and into a form of fatalism. And my latest book is relatively optimistic relative to the current consensus. I feel your pain and the difficulty of communicating this. So I want to make sure that we get to the optimism in a moment. Before that, though, I want you to help me as a non-economist, think through the main criticism of capitalism in the 21st century. So I'm going to do a layman's best attempt at summarizing that criticism, which is that when you look, for example, at the richest people in the world today, they are not people who are inheritors who have invested their money. They are actually people who come from upper middle class families usually and have made their fortunes through entrepreneurial activities. So people like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Larry Allison, that is a list of the richest people in the world right now I've been reading of. And in fact, supposedly, the shows that in the last 50 or so years, I has not been 
bigger than G. And in a related line of criticism, the concentration of wealth doesn't come from the very richest people. It doesn't come from the billionaires that we love to hate, but it actually comes from private property, especially in residential property, held among the upper middle class. So that actually to the extent to which wealth has outpaced the increase in incomes, it is because, frankly, the kinds of lawyers and doctors and academics who probably listen to this podcast who have nice apartments in New York City and San Francisco and Paris, and that's really at the heart of these developments. So again, I'm sort of triloquizing the main line of objection as I understand it. Help me think through why you think that those criticisms are wrong. Okay, let me start with the mobility argument, and then I will get to the role of real estate. And, you know, both issues are really important and interesting, you know, although I disagree with, very much with both, uh, both statements. But let, let me start with mobility. You know, of course, there's always mobility, and you, you always have people at the top, you know, who come from nowhere. I mean, you could also mention Russian oligarchs because their parents were not rich. There was no private property in the Soviet Union. So by definition, these are self-made men. The most appealing example of economic mobility, but a real example of economic mobility. So, what I mean by this is that you know, being a self-made man in itself doesn't mean that everything is fine. You know, so that's point number one, and that's important because you know, in the way you make money, you know, we like in the West, of course, to explain that the Western billionaires and Californian billionaires or European billionaires have nothing to do with Russian oligarchs. But if you look at the dynamics of wealth. You know, it's always about, you know, making good deals, buying firms at a time when their price is low, selling them when they are very high, making huge capital gains. Even if you don't yourself make always a big invention. Let me make very clear, you know, Bill Gates did not invent the computer. Uh, Elon Musk did not invent Twitter uh, or did not invent the electric car engine. You know, you have tens, hundreds of thousands of engineers, researchers, who have made this invention, who have contributed to this invention. Wealth creation is always a very collective process. You know, we've been accumulating knowledge since the beginning of mankind, and you have hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of researchers who are involved in these discoveries and who don't put their name and their paycheck at the bottom of their academic article all the time. And so, you know, private Property is a social construction that we invent as societies and which is actually a useful invention, you know, to the extent that we actually put limits on how much wealth concentration you have. But let me start by saying, you know, all wealth creation in history is collective in nature and we should stop, you know, thinking about individual genius who created everything. You know, I think this kind of monarchical view of the economy, you know, is completely outdated and has nothing to do with the reality in which we live today. But to be clear, the nature of the objection, as I understand it, is not that Elon Musk deserves all of his money. It's just that it seems to be a counterexample to the idea that the driving force in our economy for the last decades has been returns on capital. Because whether or not Elon Musk deserves as much money as he had, I agree with you that we should have a social setup, which means that he has less money than he does today. Sorry, Yasha, but it depends really what you mean by returns on capital. You know, making a huge capital gain, you know, it's a form of return on capital. So, you know, you have this enormous returns on capital, which are very concentrated for a small group of capital owners. You know, whether it's a Russian oligarch who bought shares in a Russian sector at a very low price, and then the price increased a lot, 
or whether it's uh, Zuckerberg with uh, Facebook buying the share of one of his associates at a very low price and then the price skyrocketing. You know, if you look at all big fortune, you know, it's always like that. And point number two, it's always been like that. So, you know, if you look at, say, when I look at the belly pop, you know, I like to compare, you know, wealth concentration today with the wealth concentration at the end of the 19th century and before World War One. You know, the idea that innovation and mobility is only a characteristic of today and was not the case in the past is completely crazy. You know, 1900, 1910 is the time where we invent, you know, the, the automobiles, the electricity, the transatlantic. You know, this is at least as important as Facebook or Twitter today. But this mobility and this innovation cannot justify any level of wealth concentration. And when you look back at this period, and you compare with the following period, my conclusion is that the level of wealth concentration that we had then, even though it was largely self-made and largely based on mobility, etc., was very much excessive in many different senses. It, first, it contributed a lot to the political instability of Western societies, and I think it did contribute in the end you know, to the rise of World War I, World War II, and everything we've seen after that. And also, from a purely economic perspective, it was not necessary in the sense that this extreme level of wealth concentration was drastically reduced through war destruction, but also through progressive taxation, changing institutions. And in the end, you know, the much lower level of wealth concentration that we've had after World War II increased mobility because you had some people from the middle class moving up and, you know, you had less extreme concentration of power. So to summarize, our bigger than G is interesting. You know, it's important. You know, I've given you the example of uh, returns to university on domains and you can see that this has little to do with a huge invention or whatever. So you have also size effect in the portfolio management, and these effects are also taken into account. You have also what you said, you know, a lot of mobility due to single individuals making huge capital gains on their specific uh, investment for all sorts of good and bad reasons. You know, it's always difficult to decompose, you know, what's due to luck, what's due to just making a good deal against someone else, what's due to a useful contribution. And we are not going to be able on an individual basis to make the difference. But if we look from a collective perspective at the level of wealth concentration, this is what matters. Now, going back to real estate and the middle class, you said something which is interesting. Increase in wealth inequality is not due to this top billionaire at the top, but rather to upper middle class people who own real estate. That's not quite right. At some level, you're certainly right that we cannot just look at, at billionaires. You need to look at millionaires and multimillionaires. And, you know, I stress a lot the fact that if we want real redistribution of wealth, you know, you need to target people who are above uh, 1 million or 5 million. And, you know, there are lots of people who have 10, 20, 50 millions. And in the end, there's a lot of money over there. And you cannot just look only at billionaires. And, you know, I fully agree on this. I've made a lot of research exactly on this. Regarding real estate, however, you are wrong. In the sense that if you look at the share of real estate at different levels of the wealth distribution, the basic fact is that at the very bottom, you know, people don't have real estate, they just have very small bank accounts. In the middle of the distribution, real estate is very important. 
Now, as you move in the top 10% of the distribution, and even more so in the top 1% or top 0.1%, you know, the share of real estate goes down to 0%. So, in fact, if you look overall, the orders of magnitude that are important to have in mind when we look at the wealth distribution are the following. The bottom 50% always owns close to zero, always less than 5% of total wealth. So in the US, it's going to be 2%. In Europe, it's going to be 4%. In Latin America, 1%. But you know, in the end, it's close to zero everywhere. So what matters in the end is what you have in the top 10% and what you have in the 40% who are in between the bottom 50 and the top 10, which I call the patrimonial middle class. Now, when real estate prices goes up, in fact, that's going to be good in relative terms for this middle 40% relative to the top 10, because the top 10% have much less real estate as a percentage of their total wealth than this middle 40%. So, in fact, the huge increase in real estate prices in the past decades has actually contributed to a reduction of the top 10% wealth share to the benefit of this middle 40%. I mean, this doesn't mean that increase in real estate prices is a good news in itself, because of course, for those who are really poor, the bottom 50%, this makes it even more difficult to enter the game and become an owner. Just help me understand, right? Because the way that I understand this criticism, and I'm not an economist, is precisely to say that the story, as you told it in capitalism 21st century, or at least as it was interpreted, was... This is all about wealth concentration at the very top and capital returns of people, say, like Elon Musk and a broader class of the top 1%. But according to this counter-argument, what actually happened over the last decades is that the 50th to 90th percentile, and perhaps especially the 80th, 85th, 90th, perhaps 95th percentile, has had very rapid returns on its wealth because of its investment in apartments in New York City, in apartments in Paris. Yeah, sure. Let me explain. In spite of that, their wealth share has declined. This is the point. So, you know, if you had only the real estate price effect, the wealth share of this middle 40%, you know, the people between the 50th percentile and 95th percentile, or even 95th percentile, their relative wealth share should have increased. But in fact, it has declined. And so, in effect, the increase in the real estate price has mitigated the increase in top wealth concentration. And the fact that top wealth concentration, in spite of this mitigating effect of rising real estate price, increased as much as it did, shows that the key effect driving increasing wealth concentration have nothing to do with real estate. It has to do much more with financial portfolio getting much higher returns. So, you know, it's not only billionaires. You know, in general, if you look at stock market return in the long run, you know, it's 7 8% per year, much bigger than the average rate of return for average wealth holders. And at the very top of the distribution, you know, it's a mixture of the kind of university on dominant effect, which I described earlier, which again is, is an interesting example to look at. You know, the data is really striking because what this shows is that you have size effect in portfolio management. You know, when you have 1 billion rather than 10 million, you can invest in various, you know, financial derivatives, uh, you know, private equity, uh, commodity derivatives. You know, there's a set of sophisticated financial assets which are not accessible even if you own 1 million. And if you own 100,000 or 10,000, you know, you can ask your brother-in-law what to do with the money, but probably that's not going to get you very far. So 
you know, there's a set of financial assets which are accessible for very high wealth portfolio. And so this effect doesn't make, you know, the cover page of news magazine like Bezos or Zuckerberg, but that's very important. At the same time, you also have this enormous capital gains related to very top billionaires, which, which is a separate phenomenon. You're right on this. But in any case, the real estate part of the story is not what's going to explain the increase in the top 10% wealth share and certainly not the top 5% or top 1% wealth share. Okay, great. Thank you. That was an interesting answer because I never quite knew what to make of that objection. I promised that we would talk about the positive message. So you write in the introduction to your new book, at least since the end of the 18th century, there has been a historical movement toward equality. The world of the early 2020s, no matter how unjust it may seem, is more egalitarian than that of 1950 or that of 1900, which were themselves in many respects more egalitarian than those of 1850 or 1780. Just at a descriptive level, talk to us about that progress. Why is it that in 2022, just looking at the state of equality in the world, we should at first glance be heartened relative to our own past? Yeah, so what I'm trying to do in this new book, A Brief History of Equality, is really to try to escape from the sort of current uh, pessimism when you are really looking at the very recent uh, evolution and try to take this broad historical comparative perspective. And if you do that, indeed, the broad evolution is a long-run movement toward more equality, which, you know, is not something that happened naturally. No, it happens through huge political mobilization, uh, social struggles, and most importantly, through constructive transformation of the legal system, the institutional system, the electoral system, the tax educational, etc. So to summarize, you know, the movement, it's not a movement that has been there since Neolithic times. You know, it's grounded in history. You know, in particular, it starts at the end of the 18th century. You know, there are two set of events which we start the process, you know, I stress in particular the abolition of the privileges of the aristocracy during the French Revolution, which is sort of the beginning of the end of societies based on privileges on the one hand, and the slave revolt in uh, Saint-Domingue, which takes place in 1791, which, you know, is partly due to the French Revolution, but it's largely due to the slaves themselves, because, you know, people in Paris didn't want to put an end to slavery initially, so it's really a slave revolt, which sets the beginning of the end of slave and colonial societies on the other hand. Now, you can see that these two movements are still not over, you know, in the sense that we still live today, you know, in societies where the privileges of money in politics in particular are very important. You know, I think the system of uh, political financing of the media, you know, gives a lot more influence to people with a lot of money than to normal citizens. And, you know, maybe one day, when we look at what we call democracy today, uh, we will come to realize that, okay, maybe it's better than in the 19th century where only the wealthiest people could vote, but it has nothing to do with a real democracy where you could expect a very strict limitation of the role of private money in politics, in media, in think tank, and much more egalitarian uh, rights to participate to the political process. And if you look at the end of slavery and colonial society, okay, we've had the abolition of slavery, we've had decolonization, the end of apartheid, the end of segregation, but, you know, we still have enormous discrimination and, you know, racial inequality today, both at the domestic level, you know, at the international level. So these two 
evolution, which have been continuing during the 19th century, the 20th century, with decolonization, the rise of progressive taxation, the rise of social security, the labor movement, you know, which has bring more equal societies today, you know, radically more equal and radically different uh, than what we had one century or two centuries ago. You know, the general conclusion is certainly not that we should be um, happy and satisfied with this. You know, my general perspective is that should and could continue this movement toward more equality, which requires, you know, to think big because the transformations that we've seen in the past are big. The legal system today, you know, what defines workers' rights, uh, tenants' rights, uh, the tax system, the social security system, the education system, you know, has nothing to do with the capitalist system of 1910. You know, we talk about capitalism, but in fact, you know, the system today is completely different from the system of one century ago. And so when I talk about the future, And, you know, I describe a system of participatory uh, socialism, uh, uh, you know, democratic federalism. You know, many people will say, oh, that's so different from what we have today. Yeah, you know, it's different from what we have today. But I would say, you know, it's not more different from what we have today than what we have today is different from 1950 or 1910, you know, which was very uh, patriarchal, uh, colonial capitalism. So we have to put the questions that we're trying to solve today into this broad historical perspective if we want to solve the challenges of today. Because if we don't do that, and we always say, oh, you know, we cannot change anything to the economic system, we cannot change anything to the tax system, then I think we are contributing, you know, not only to the pessimism, but also to this rise of uh, xenophobic populism, to this rise of identity-based politics, because, you know, if you tell people, okay, there's nothing you can change about inequalities, there's nothing you can change about the economic system, governments cannot do anything except controlling their frontiers and their borders, you know, then, of course, 20 years or 30 years later, the entire political discussion is about uh, border control and identity. But, you know, this is just because you restrict the set of what, what we can talk about and what we can change in a certain manner, which, in effect, produces all this specificism. So what I'm trying to do, you know, is to take stock of this enormous and very successful rise of equality in the past two centuries, which has been absolutely central in the rise of modern economic growth, modern economic prosperity, which has really relied on this huge increase in economic rights, education for all, health for all. You know, this has been central in the rise of modern economic growth, modern economic prosperity, and we should continue in this direction. So I'm very sympathetic to that account. And again, it strikes me that, you know, my latest book is about the challenge of building ethnically and religiously diverse democracies. And I make a cautiously optimistic argument rooted in an understanding of how unjust societies were in the past, which I think allows us to see real progress over the last decades. But I know exactly what the response to that tends to be, which say, what are you talking about? When I look at reality today, it's so unjust, it is so unequal, how can you say that there have been progress? So just to push you a little bit towards a description of the assumption of a last answer, which is what you say to people who say, well, hang on a second, you told us about how the benefits are going to the very, very richest and the biggest billionaires and so on. The Gini coefficient in many Western countries is growing and you have all of these policies which are exacerbating inequality. How can you say that there has been a growth in inequality? Now you have 
a really clearly evidenced answer to that. And it struck me that actually, when you look at the graphs in the first half of your book, you sometimes have the feeling of reading, you know, something like Stephen Pinker's Better Angels of Our Nature, which is not a thinker you would normally be associated with, but it goes through the growth in life expectancy and the literacy rate, the fall in the share of income and the share of wealth held by the 1%. So just tell us that story. How is it that the economy looks different today than it is? 100 years ago, and how is it that it's actually more equal than it was 100 years ago? Yeah, so let's put some numbers about, you know, inequality and, and the concentration of wealth and concentration of income. Because, you know, that's necessary to be able to make comparison across societies, comparison across long period of time. And, you know, this has been, after all, you know, my main uh, work has been to try, you know, to collect uh, this historical uh, information. And, you know, I'm very much working in the continuation of, you know, the Annal School of Social and Economic Histories that developed in France, but also the Anglo-American tradition of uh, Kuznets and Atkinson and building you know, national accounts and distribution of income and wealth so that we can make proper comparison. So if we look at the distribution of wealth today and compare it to one century ago or the 19th century, you know, there are two things which are true at the same time. The first thing is that there's been a decline in inequality and I'm going to give you a number in a second. But the second thing is that inequality today is still enormous and has even increased in recent decades, even though we are not back to the 19th century level. And the two claims are true at the same time. And maybe that's what's difficult for people to realize. So the reality, you know, it's a complex reality in the sense that, you know, there's been some progress toward more equality, but we still live in very unequal societies. So let's put numbers. If we look at the bottom 50% of the population, they still today, they almost don't own anything. They would own, you know, 4% of everything there is to own. So here I'm talking about real estate, companies, financial assets, you know, net of debt. So I look at everything people own net of what they owe, and I look at the distribution of this, the bottom 50% of the population, you know, if we lived in a completely equal society, they should own 50% which, of course, we don't now. They own always less than five, say 2% in the US, 4% in Europe. In the 19th century, it was between 1% and 2% for the bottom 50%. So, you know, there's been a little improvement, but, you know, it's still close to zero. Now, the top 10%, actually, their share has declined quite significantly. So if you look at, you know, European societies before World War One, the top 10% would own 80 to 90% of the total. So, you know, almost everything. Whereas today, they would own, you know, 50 to 60% of the total, which is still a lot for 10% of the population, of course. But, you know, this is a very significant decline. So who has gained? Well, this is this sort of middle 40% who are not in the bottom 50 and who are not in the top 10. This group used to own very little, 5 to 10% of the total. So, you know, they were a bit richer than the bottom 50% by definition but not so much richer. So in the sense, there was no real middle class at that time. Whereas today, they would own 20, 30, or even sometimes 40% of the total, which given that they are 40% of the population, this doesn't make them very rich. It means that on average, they typically own around average wealth. So, you know, 100,000 euros, 200,000 euros, 300. So you're not very rich, you know, when you own 100, 200, 300, but you're far from being completely poor. And by the way, you don't like to be treated like a poor person because, you know, you've owned something, you've accumulated something. And so in the long run, 
we have this improvement in the sense that the share of total waste going to this middle 40% has increased. Now, the problem is that in recent decades, you know, starting around 1980, 1990, this share has actually declined a little bit, especially in the US, where, you know, it used to be, like in Europe, 30, 35% of total wealth for this middle 40% group, and it's going toward 20, 25%. You know, it's still better than in the 19th century when it was 5 or 10%, but, you know, it's not going in the right direction. And in Europe, you know, the increase in inequality has been less strong than in the US, but still it's a positive trend. So to summarize, we've made progress, but we still have enormous inequality of wealth, in particular the bottom 50% don't own anything. And one of the big questions I am asking in my research is what can we do in the future to improve access to wealth, access to property, in particular for the bottom 50%. So we have this mixed story, right, where we continue to have a lot of inequality, but the society is actually a lot more equal than it was. And it's important to you to emphasize that because you want to emphasize the scope for political agency, right? So tell us about how political agency has actually won those improvements, what it is, what political events and what laws and institutions have allowed us over the last centuries to make some significant progress towards equality. And then tell us a little bit about what that implies for what kind of future political action you think would be necessary to make sure that the march towards equality continues. Yeah, exactly. So what can we do to try to improve how much the bottom 50% is getting and what can we learn from the past progress that has been made? You know, one story will be we just need to wait for growth and, you know, market competition to spread the wealth. You know, if you look at the share going to the bottom 50%, you know, the problem is that we've had growth for two centuries and we've not seen much improvement in the share going to the bottom 50%. So if we just wait for that, you know, this might take a very long time. Another interpretation would be, okay, we cannot do better than that. You know, if we try to redistribute wealth towards the bottom 50%, you know, the sky is going to fall, the economy is going to stop working because we actually need this level of concentration of wealth for the economy to operate. Now, that could be true, except that the historical evidence, coming to your question, is that, in fact, in the past, when we've had this big decline in the share going to the top 10% and this big increase, so this big redistribution towards the middle 40%, the economy did not stop working. In fact, if anything, this increased the growth rate of the economy. So why is it so? And how did it happen? And what can we learn for the future? Well, some people stress, and I have contributed to that, you know, the role of World War One, World War Two in the destruction of very top wealth holders. But in the end, you know, this is not the most important part of the story, because if it was just this shock, you know, we should have returned to the previous level more or less after that. So if we've had a structural change in the distribution, this is due to more positive and constructive reason, which generally speaking, the rise of the welfare state, the rise of free and public and relatively universal education, not only contributed a lot to modern growth and modern productivity growth, but also has made the distribution of income and the distribution of labor income more equal. And this gives the possibility for the middle class, you know, to save and accumulate more wealth. The tax progressivity, you know, the fact that the tax system has become more progressive during the 20th century and so ask more tax for people in the top 10%, top 20%, 
has also contributed to reduce taxation for the middle class, you know, as compared to what you would have had in a system with a regressive tax system like the one we had in the 19th century. So, you know, all these positive factors, you know, have contributed to reduce inequality in the long run. And also, you know, I want to stress to increase prosperity. You know, the fact that in particular the US economy was by far the most productive in the world, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, you know, was due to the fact that there was this very substantial educational advance of the US at the time, you know, in 1950, 90% of the cohort would go to high school in the US. At the same time, it was 20, 30% in Germany, in France, in Japan. And you need to wait until the 1980s, 90s to see a catch-up both of education and productivity between the US and Western Europe and Japan. And in the middle of the 20th century, you know, in fact, the US tax system is the most progressive in history. You know, top tax rates are 80, 90 percent. And if you take an average between 1930, 1980, you have a top tax rate of 82 percent. This does not prevent productivity growth innovation because income gaps of 1 to 100, 1 to 200 are just not necessary for growth. You know, I'm not saying you want full equality. Maybe you need income gap of 1 to 5, 1 to 10, 1 to 20. You know, people can disagree about that. My reading of the historical evidence I have is that, you know, 1 to 5 or 1 to 10 at most is sufficient. But in any case, you know, 1 to 100, 1 to 200, this kind of huge gaps my reading of the evidence, and I've spent a lot of time collecting this data, comparing societies, is that it's just not necessary. You know, in the recent decades, you've had this huge increase in billionaire wealth concentration, wealth concentration at the top. This was supposed to boost the economy, to lead to a much faster uh, rise of average uh, income and average wages, in particular in the US. You know, this is the promise that Ronald Reagan made in the 1980s. You know, 30 years later, what we see is that the growth rate of national income per capita in the U.S. has been divided by two between 1950, 1980, and 1990, 2020. And I think this has contributed to a huge disappointment in the U.S. and also to the fact that the Republican Party, you know, has become a lot, you know, anti-foreigners, anti-China, anti-Mexican, anti-Muslim, because in effect, they had to find some explanation as to why hard work of America, you know, did not pay off in terms of income growth. And so I think in the end, you know, this false promise, you know, had, had a very negative impact. But to summarize, the reduction of inequality and, you know, in particular, the increase in the share of total wealth going to the middle class came in the 20th century through a number of public policies, broadly speaking, you know, the rise of social security, free education, progressive taxation. And so the key question is based on these historical lessons. How can we keep making progress in the future? And in particular, how can we improve the share of total wealth owned by the bottom 50%, which is still very, very, very small today? So I want to come to some of the suggestions you have for how to do that. But before that, Phil, I would love to get you a sense of what the historical role of the left is going to be in that process. Because as I understand it, one of the strange ironies of the economic transformations of the last century, and perhaps particularly the last decade, is that it has changed the socioeconomic base of the left. You know, the left always had a very large working class constituency, as well as a middle and upper middle class constituency consisting of intellectuals and teachers and state employees and so on. But because of the rapid growth of the middle and upper middle class, 
And because of a set of cultural transformations that have weakened the support for the left among the working class, that is, as you've chronicled, no longer what the left looks like today. In fact, the left in many countries has become so bourgeois that it tends to earn more money than the right on average, or at least very many right-wing voters. So is the left, if its social base has come to be upper-middle-class professionals in the suburbs of the United States have gone to good colleges, for example, still going to be able to be a motor for that kind of equality? Will the right, ironically, become a motor for that kind of equality if some of the sort of populist Republicans, for example, actually manage to build a working-class cross-racial coalition? Or is there simply going to be no historical motor for that kind of equality, which might perhaps be a reason to be more fatalistic about the developments of the next decades than you've been in your recent book? Yes, so I talk about this in Capital and Ideology, and we also have a recent collective book with uh, Amory Guetta and Clara Martinez Tolenado, where we study you know, the transformation of the structure of social inequality and political privileges in 50 electoral democracies from 1948 to 2020, basically all Western countries, but also lots of non-Western countries, which have seen interesting evolution as well. But just to summarize the findings for Western democracies, what we've seen in recent decades is the rise of what I have proposed to call the Brahmin left, by which I mean the high-educated left. What's striking is that what you have today is both the upper class and the lower class are divided. If you look at the upper class, the high education elite now tend to vote for the left, but the high wealth elite still voting for the right. So, you know, you have a division between the two. Now, if you have both high education and high wealth, you know, sometimes you are a bit lost between those two different allegiances, but you separate the two effects because, you know, not everybody has both. You can see very clearly the two different effects, which was not the case. If you look at the 1950-1980 period, the sort of classical period for the left, they will get both the low wealth and low education and low income. So all these different dimensions of socioeconomic stratification were sort of aligned. Whereas today, you have a misalignment between this, you know, in particular, education and the and property and wealth and the, and, and the one. You also have, if you look now at the bottom of society, a huge division because it will be too simple to say, you know, working class has moved to the right. Well, it depends which working class. You know, you have different forms of the working class. And, you know, as you know, you know, if you look at the minorities, which in fact are the majority of working class in the US today and will be more and more the majority of working class in the future, you know, the Republican Party is not doing particularly well. Well, that's rapidly changing when you look at the biggest minority group, which is Latinos, for example. So, What you mean? They start from 80% support and now they only have 70% support for Democrats, you know, 65 You know, it's still... Well, among Latinos, we're not very far away now from 50-50. I think we're at 60-40 in, in many states and in many polls. Yeah, yeah you know, 60-40... For five or ten years and that may no longer be. Yeah, well, you know, 60-40 is a big difference from 50-50. And if you look at the African-American, you know, always been uh, above 80-20, uh, you know, for the past uh, 60 years. And, you know, I don't think this is going to change anytime soon. If you look in Europe, well, I can tell you in France, in the recent elections, you know, you take the... You know, the poorest uh, department in France, which is the uh, Saint-Saint-Denis in the north suburbs of Paris, you know, with lots of uh, North African immigrants and also, you know, 
other people who are not North African or African immigrant, but who live with them and don't have the kind of conflict that some people, you know, in rural areas have with uh, non-European immigration. You know, people did not vote at all for the populist strike. They actually voted for the left with huge electoral score for the left bloc, you know, 50, 60%, 70% of the vote sometimes, you know, in Seine-Saint-Denis or in the poorest area of Marseille. Now, if you look at the rural tour, the white rural tour, then indeed they vote for the populist strike. So what I'm saying is that both in the US and in Europe, you know, when you look at working class vote, we have to be very careful because we have a division. So you have also a division in the upper class vote, as I was explaining, for different reasons, although they are you know, partly related, but these are by and large different reasons. So this is the big picture is that, you know, we used to have an electorate that is very much divided among sort of one-dimensional class lines. And today we have an electorate that is divided among multi-dimensional social class divisions. Let me push you towards, I think, what the core of the question was, which is when you look at a party like the Democrats today, who certainly do have very strong support among African-Americans, who have strong but much less univocal support among non-white virtue groups like Hispanics, but who also, in their leading exponents, in their strategists, in their staff, in the media outlets which determine much of their language, much of their program, are very dominated by an upper and upper middle class, highly educated elite. What are the prospects for the Democratic Party or for left-wing parties in Europe to be the motors of this kind of historical change towards equality? Yeah, so to summarize, you know, I think the problem is that the left has sort of given up on an ambitious uh, redistributive program and indeed has been sort of taken over uh, to a large extent by a sort of uh, high education, uh, university graduate agenda. And, you know, I think this is due to a more general ideological transformation that happened during the 1980s, 1990s. You know, the fall of communism in Soviet Union you know, was a very good news for people living under the communist bloc. But this has had uh, lots of consequences. I mean, one of which is the rise of nationalism in Russia that we see the effect of today. So, you know, it was sort of a miracle that the that, that, uh, end of the Soviet Union sort of happened almost peacefully, except in ex-Yugoslavia, but in the Soviet Union itself, almost peacefully. You know, 30 years later, we can see that the consequences in terms of uh, end of uh, sort of universalist objective and rise of nationalism, you know, is still very much with us today. And in the West, you know, this has contributed during the 1990s and early 2000 to the rise of a sort of unlimited face in the self-regulated power of the market and the fact that, you know, market competition, globalization, you know, is going to solve every problem and we can stop thinking about, you know, redistribution, regulation. You know, this has started to change, I think, after the 2008 financial crisis, people have realized the uh, limits of deregulation and, you know, market competition. And, you know, I think the pandemic is also going to contribute and has already contributed to the end of neoliberalism. The big question today is, is this going to be replaced by neo-nationalism, you know, partly for the reason I indicated, both in the US, in Russia, in, in Europe, in India, in Brazil, or are we going to have the beginning of sort of a new agenda for equality redistribution? You know, I talk about participatory socialism. Some people don't want to use the word socialism. Okay, use another word if you want. But in any case, you know, we need to rebuild 
a sort of, you know, egalitarian universalist platform. And I think, you know, if the left does not go in this direction, you know, they will never be able to regain support from the working class. You know, the good news is that most of the working class voters, you know, it's not that they are convinced by the xenophobic right. You know, most of the working class voters actually stay at home. You know, they just stop voting. You know, if you look at participation in electoral democracy, well, you know, it's not a very good news, but at least what this shows is that, you know, if they were enthusiastic about the populist right, you know, they would all vote and go and vote for Le Pen and Trump, you know, with 90% participation rate, uh, you know, like uh, what we had actually in Western European democracies between 1950 and 1980. In the US, you know, the poor never had very high participation rate anyway. But, you know, I think, you know, this is what it will take. If you want to bring back to the voting booth some of these voters, you have to take the billionaire tax and wealth taxation. You know, this is very popular in the US public opinion, not only among Democratic voters, but also among working class Republican voters. Now, if the Democratic elite, media elite, financial elite, educated elite, you know, keeps opposing this kind of evolution, you know, of course, that's not going to help because this contributes to portray the left as a sort of elite left, upper educated left. So, you know, this will take a major transformation of the economic platform in order to achieve this change. So I know that you're not an American citizen, I believe, and you're not a campaign strategist, but let's imagine, and perhaps this has happened, that Ron Klein, the White House chief of staff, rings you up tomorrow and says, we're struggling in the polls and there's a real chance that Donald Trump comes back in 2024 and that would be a major threat to our democracy, we want to change and tell us how we can change in such a way that we will actually help to combat some of the problems, that we will actually make a real move towards equality, and that we mobilize all of those people who are staying home, but we actually appeal to them. What changes do you think they would need to make culturally to make sure that the Democratic Party ceases to be seen as the party of educated elites? And what changes do they need to make in the economic program to appeal to some of the working class voters who are either staying at home today or attempted to vote for the Republican Party? So this is a question about the U.S. Because let me make clear that you know I'm not particularly hopeful about the U.S. You know I think the U.S. political system is so corrupt. You know I think this can change, but you know I'm more hopeful in uh, in Europe or other parts of the world than in the U.S. But I want to hear an answer about the U.S. But feel free to also answer about Europe. I'm happy to answer about the end, but you know, sometimes people in the US also, there's a risk that they are only interested in the US, which I think is a big problem. But, you know, I think, you know, it's 5% of the world population and, you know, the other 95% are at least as interested. But going back to the US, I think the Democratic Party had a chance to attract younger voters and, you know, more working class voters, you know, with the kind of platforms that, you know, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren were pushing. And I think, you know, the Democratic Party has to talk about those who suffer from, uh, you know, huge debt, uh, student debt, or, you know, mortgage debt, you know, what do you do with people who have a big debt, you know. Sorry to interrupt you, but let me jump in on student debt, because I think that the European system of organizing universities where students don't have to go into student debt is much superior to the American one, right? But when I look at the program of Bernie Sanders and as a before on something like student debt, it actually isn't a promise to transform the system. 
It's a promise to forgive the debt of people who on average have gone to law school and medical school and stand to make a lot of money in their life. So it actually reduces money from the poor to the rich. So isn't that part of a problem rather than part of a solution? I mean, if you don't let me finish what I start, you know, it's going to be difficult. So I was talking about, you know, debt in general. So again, if you look at the bottom 50% of the population in the US, you know, who are not people who are going to be doctors or lawyers or whatever, let me be very clear. These are people who have enormous debt, you know, some of them for their studies, some of them because they wanted to buy a home and they are struggling to repay their mortgage or because they tried to create a firm. It was not as successful as they would have liked it to be and they end up sometimes, you know, with a debt which is much bigger than their assets. So, you know, this is redistribution of wealth towards this group of people. This takes, you know, different forms. Debt cancellation can be interesting, but I certainly agree that we need to look exactly at the conditions and you certainly don't want to have debt cancellation for people who are about to earn millions. We agree on that. So I think it's very important, you know, to put condition and generally speaking to use progressive tax schedule based on income, but also based on wealth because you cannot define tax justice and social justice in general just by looking at Income, it's very important to look at wealth. You know, there are other ways to redistribute wealth that are more structural, that have to do with a, a minimum inheritance for all. You know, I have proposed to have everybody at age 25 receiving, you know, 120,000 euros in the European context, or, you know, it could be the equivalent in dollars or 150,000 dollars, which, you know, I think will create a much more dynamic economy. You know, I think the many poor people in the US, you know, if you look at the bottom 50%, bottom 60 or even 70% in the US economy, you know, they don't believe that the economy is fair. They don't believe that people at the top own everything because they are so productive and the bottom people are just, you know, lazy, unproductive people who deserve what they have. You know, I think people realize, you know, who's working hard. You know, you have people working incredibly hard in the gig economy, in traditional blue-collar jobs, in the service sector, in shops, in all sorts of unsector jobs with terrible working conditions. And if you had, you know, a platform to redistribute income and wealth and, you know, working condition, you know, in a very ambitious manner in the direction of this group, you know, I think this is simply the only way to try to bring back voters to the voting booth. Or it means that people give up on this would be to say people will never vote, people will never participate, you know, which would be a sort of very nihilistic view of democracy which, by the way, will be very dangerous, not only for the US or for Europe, but for the world in general, because, you know, you have alternative political and economic system today, you know, including, uh, of course, uh, Chinese uh, autocracy and, and Russian autocracy, you know, who are promoting an alternative view of development through uh, investment in Africa, in South Asia, etc. And if Western countries, you know, are not able to promote a model of economic development that's based on more equality within the West, but also at the international level, you know, I think there's a very big risk that somehow the winner of the competition will be an autocratic uh, development model. And so I think the stakes are enormous and uh, we have to give up on the kind of completely wrong ideological claims about always more concentration of power and wealth in a few ends. 
I stress this in my work, you know, you have this sort of sacralized view or almost monarchical view of the economy, you know, centered on a very small group of individuals. I can understand why many people are afraid of democratic deliberation about the proper distribution of wealth. And they say, oh, if we start having this democratic deliberation about wealth redistribution, where are we going to stop? That's too complicated. So, you know, let's sacralize the winner. Let's not touch at all. I can see where it comes from. But at the end of the day, first, this is nihilistic, because with this kind of nihilistic view of democracy, you know, this is what's going to give the floor to autocracy. And secondly, you know, this is not based on a proper assessment of history. Because if you look at the lessons from the 20th century, you know, I think very progressive taxation was a huge success. Huge educational expansion and social security expansion was a huge success. So, you know, these are the new steps that we need to look at today, both for, you know, education, health, infrastructure, and the redistribution of wealth itself. If 50 or 100 years from now, somebody writes a follow-up to a brief history of equality and says, things have gone as well as we possibly could have imagined, the march towards equality has continued and perhaps it's even accelerated, what would that author's description of the present look like? Which is to say, if we succeed in pushing towards more equality, what will our societies be like in 50 or 100 years? Well, I think it will be a society with a much more inclusive uh, distribution of power in general. So, you know, we've talked a lot about wealth in our discussion, but let me stress that what matters the most is not so much money in itself, but really the power and opportunities that come with it. You know, when you have no wealth at all, your bargaining power vis-à-vis society in general and vis-à-vis your own life is very small because, you know, if you own zero or if you only have debt, you have to accept everything. You have to accept any job, any working condition, any wage you are being proposed because, you know, you need to pay your rent, you need to feed your family. If you own just, you know, 100, 200, 300,000 euros or dollars, this seems very small to people who have millions or billions. But in fact, it makes a huge difference as compared to zero because it means, you know, you don't need to accept everything right away. You can think about it. You have other options. You can start a company. You can buy a home. You can start projects in life which does not require you to pay your rent every month. So this changes the distribution of power in society. Now, there are other ways to change the distribution of power in societies. You know, this includes participation to the electoral process, financing of political parties, financing of the media in a much more egalitarian manner. And, you know, there are proposals that have been made about you know, democratic equality vouchers, media vouchers, so that we have a much more egalitarian distribution of power with respect to political influence. This also involves more democracy in the workplace. And I want to stress this because we didn't have time to talk about this, but I think one of the very successful transformations of the 20th century was more workers' rights. In particular, there are countries, you know, like Germany, Sweden, you know, Nordic European countries where workers have up to 50% of voting rights in the board of corporations, which you know, okay, it's always 50% plus one for shareholders, but it means that if in addition to this 50% of voting rights as workers, workers also have a 10% stake in the capital of the company, or if a local government has a 10% stake in the capital of the company, then the majority can shift 
to workers even in front of a shareholder who has 90% of the stock of the company. And I can tell you that from the point of view of a shareholder in France or in the US, in UK, where you don't have this kind of legislation, this looks like communism, except that this has been in place in Germany and Sweden since the 1950s. And I think by and large, this has been very successful. I think this has allowed, you know, workers to be involved in the long-term strategy of companies. And, you know, in the end, this has been very successful. I think in the societies that I imagine in 50 years, 60 years, 80 years, we should build on that and go even further. So what I propose, what I describe in my book is, okay, you should have at least 50% of voting rights for worker representative in all companies, small and large. And in the other 50% of voting rights going to shareholders, you know, you could have a cap on the maximum share of voting rights going to a single shareholder, maybe we should not have more than 10% of these 50% of voting rights in companies of more than 100 workers. You know, we're not going to decide you and me today about the perfect formula. But you see, the general idea is that one single individual cannot have so much power. The fact that you had good ideas at the age of 25 or 30 or that you were very lucky or both should not imply that you keep all the decision-making power at the age of 50, at the age of 80, at the age of 90, you know, especially with the very long life expectancy that we have today. So you need to sort of rebalance and redistribute power permanently in society through the tax system and redistribution of wealth, but also through the legal system of how companies and economic units are being governed. So, you know, this is a kind of circulation of power that I imagine in the future. And I think if someone today were to look at the workers' rights or tenants' rights in 1910, where, you know, a property owner, because you own a building or because you earn a company, you can fire your workers or your tenants or you can double their rent or divide their wage by two the next morning. You know, when we look at that today, we say, oh, okay, this was really very extreme. And today, you know, there are rules. And I'm looking at the transformation of these rules in the long run, and I'm trying to imagine the next step. This will look like what I've just described. But, you know, of course, the real course followed by history, you know, is always different from what we can plan rationally. So, you know, I'm just trying to give some hints as possible trajectories, but, you know, big crises, you know, in particular, the environmental crisis to come, which we did not have time to talk much about, will invent its own solution. And I think, you know, together with the competition with China and autocracies, you know, the environmental crisis to come can change attitudes toward inequality and attitudes toward the economic system very fast. Because when people see the concrete consequences uh, on their life uh, much more strongly than what they can see today, you know, I think attitudes toward people who uh, do uh, space tourism and, you know, who take uh, their private jet uh, all day long and want to give lessons to the rest of the planet about how to solve their problem, you know, I think people will not find this very funny for very long. So there are many forces of transformation that are difficult to forecast, but which, you know, I think just like in the past can transform power relation and in the end institutions much faster than what we typically imagine and what the elites in every society, you know, always, of course, say that nothing is ever going to change and nothing can ever change, except that things always change and it will be the same 
in the future as it was in the past. And, you know, I think the lessons from economic and political histories I'm trying to draw in my work and maybe contribute to the kind of democratization of economic knowledge that we need in order to prepare, you know, this possible change. But it will take major social and political fight, obviously. Thomas Piketty, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot for your attention. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. 